Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe and Big Al answer your individual retirement account questions, also known as the IRA. Do the stretch IRA rules apply to 401ks? Do you need to get an annual property appraisal if you own real estate in a self-directed IRA? And what is the best strategy for saving into retirement accounts and making Roth IRA conversions? Plus, a tribute to Jack Bogle of Vanguard and a look at state's efforts to develop financially literate high school students. But first, national best-selling author Chris Hogan of The Chris Hogan Show tells us all about his brand new book, Everyday Millionaires, How Ordinary People Built Extraordinary Wealth and How You Can Too. I'm producer Andy Last, and here bringing the excitement with Chris Hogan are the hosts of Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Can't wait. I am so stoked today. I, you and me both. We got uh, Chris Hogan on. Yes. Everyday Millionaires. You've read that book, right? Yes. And you were referencing... The Millionaire Next Door. That I, Similar. There's some parallels. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, I'm, this this is going to just jack this show right it, up. It is, because Chris is a good speaker. You, you and I are, are awful. hacks. <laughs> Total hacks. I uh, want to introduce Chris Hogan. Chris, welcome to the show, my friend. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be with you. Hey, well, well let's dive right into your book. Tell me about your new book, Everyday Millionaires. Well, you all were just referencing Thomas Stanley's Millionaire Next Door, and that was a book that came out some 25 years ago uh, and gave an incredible peek into the life of millionaires. You know, what do they look like? Where are they? And uh, it was a a foundational book for me, uh, reading it back in the 90s, uh, really starting to begin to understand a topic that I didn't know about. Being from rural Kentucky, I didn't hear anybody talk about millionaires, or if I heard about it, it was from poor athletes and entertainers on TV, which didn't seem like a reality to me. And so, you know, using that book as a foundation, what I wanted to find out is, is it possible for regular everyday people these days in America to be able to build wealth? And so Millionaire Next Door gave a peek, and so I really wanted to do a deep dive. And so we started to have some conversations, uh, and it started to grow. And what we did was reach out to a research firm and commissioned a study so we could talk to over 10,000 millionaires. So it's the largest study that's ever been done on millionaires uh, in America. And I wanted to know the reality and what's going on. Are these trust fund babies or are these regular everyday people that work hard? The assumption is... You know, if you're a millionaire, you either inherited the money. Yeah, you're born into you're, it. You're right? born into it. Yeah. You know, but but what your study found is that there was a lot of myths. Oh, there were a lot. Uh, there were six big ones that we were able to chop down. Uh, but I can focus on a couple of these with you all here. Uh, looking at it, you're right. The whole inherited thing. Uh, a lot of people thought that. And I want to be honest and transparent with you. I thought that, too. You know, I thought, well, I mean, it's, that's how they got their money. It was just handed to them. And in reality, when we the, the reality is, is that you have 79% of the millionaires didn't inherit a dime. 79%. And so the reality is, is that it's not about that it was handed off, is that these are first generation wealth builders, people that built wealth over time. And I think it's important for us to chop these myths down, because if you think the only way you can build wealth is to inherit it and your family doesn't have any money, then psychologically you start to believe that it's not possible for you. Yeah, without question. Or, you know, you need a silver spoon in your hand or you, you need to make sh- you know, hang out with the right people to get the yeah. right connections. Or, or you need to have this really high paying job. And that's not necessarily the case either. No, you're absolutely right. That was another one that got chopped down. People think in order to build wealth, I have to have this massive paying job. Well, the reality is we had a third of the millionaires that we studied never had a six figure income in a single working year. Never had it. 
And so the reality is, is that these aren't trust fund babies. These aren't people that got lucky or inherited it. These are individuals that have worked hard, working a regular job as well. The top three professions that we found in our study were this. Number one was engineer because they're good at planning stuff. That didn't surprise me, right? <laughs> Number two was accountants. Well, they're good at counting stuff. Alan! So <laughs> yeah, that's a, I was happy to see that, Chris, because that's what I am. That's right. But number three shocked me, and that was teachers. We're talking about teachers in high school or college. And people get confused with that. They go, well, wait a minute. Teachers, this is a undervalued profession. They're not paid near enough uh, to, to put up with all them kids. And I would agree with that. So how did they get there? Well, we've got to go back to what you guys know and what you teach about as well. And that is, what is net worth? And so I've really been trying to help people process this, that net worth is, you know, the personal financial statement, looking at your assets and your liabilities. But to really boil it down, it's about what you own minus what you owe. So looking at your 401ks, the 403bs, the IRAs, the Roth IRAs, your home if you have it paid off, even the, the, the money in your bank account, adding that up, subtracting out anything you owe on, and if that net worth is a million dollars, then you're an everyday millionaire. You know, I think... Some people get a little intimidated by money, and for them just to take those first steps, just to say, hey, just write down what you have and write down maybe what you owe, I think that absolutely is the first step you know, to get people motivated to at least become financially successful. What other key attributes? Uh, they have to take the first steps, but th there's other attributes that these individuals have to achieve this financial independence or financial success. No, you're absolutely right. And that was the thing that I'd wanted to do in the book was not only share some stats, uh, also give them real information, some commonalities, also share some incredible stories. But the attributes are something that are important for people because these are things we can start to do in our lives. These are things we can start to do, the things that these millionaires are doing. So there were five key kind of characteristics that jumped out at me. Uh, the first one was is that they take personal responsibility. Uh, these are people that are looking at where they are and they're owning it. They're not looking to blame anybody. They're not looking uh, to, to shift the focus to a, a reason why they haven't achieved anything. They own it themselves. The second characteristic was they're intentional with their finances. That means they're doing the habits of budgeting. They're getting themselves out of debt. They're saving and they're investing, right? It's not an accident each and every month. They're also hardworking people. They're people that when they're doing their job, they're on their job. They're not distracted. They're not watching cat videos. These people <laughs> are doing what they well. need to do, right? And they're also goal-oriented. That means they can set a target, lay out a plan, and then they work to get there. They don't get distracted. They're not worried about what other people are doing. They're focused on themselves. And I think looking at those, personal responsibility, practicing intentionality with their finances, being goal-oriented, being hardworking, leads to this fifth and final one. And I know you all will, will wholeheartedly agree with this, that these millionaires understood this, that building wealth requires being consistent over time. It's not about a flash in a pan or one thing that you do. It's a really a focus of how you live your life. It's a lot of uh, lifelong decisions, making good, small decisions all the way through. So, and watching a couple cat videos. Yeah, well, I mean, I was thinking, I, I've seen a couple, but, <laughs> I, but I don't watch them I, every night. I guarantee you, Alan, you love I, the cat I've videos. I've seen a I mean, how, who doesn't love cat videos? <laughs> but Chris, let me, let me ask you. So um, with these attributes, so how do, you, how do you get started? Well, I think, you know, realistically, I think the key – uh, guys and all of this is number one you need to believe that it's possible for you I think if you doubt or you don't think you can do something well I think you can be right 
We can have this self-fulfilling prophecy where we undermine ourselves or don't give a full force effort. And so looking at it and believing that you can, then understanding it's really important to gain the knowledge. That is reading. That's meeting with quality professionals to help you along the way. And then third is it boils down to our habits and our behaviors. Controlling those allows us to be able to move forward. One of the things I really liked about your book was you you weaved in a lot of stories about different people that really didn't, they didn't grow up with money, but yet they became millionaires. And, and maybe, why don't you tell us about a story or two? Sure. Well, this, this book is full of everyday millionaire stories all throughout the book, because I wanted people to be able to not just hear the information. I wanted them to be able to hear from the people. Uh, there are all kinds of stories that jump out at me, but one in particular is Thomas. Uh, Thomas was a, a young man that grew up in a household that was tough. Um, it was a dysfunctional home. Uh, his dad was an alcoholic. Uh, his mom struggled with some some mental health issues. And because of that, he ended up having to be in and out of some foster homes. Uh, his parents couldn't take care of him. Nobody else in his family wanted him or, or was willing to take care of him. And so he was put into the foster system and had to end up kind of feeling his way around trying to figure out what to do. And so he ended up uh, going to serve in the military, uh, went to be able to serve his country, got out, came back, pursued, got his degree. And then he went into a field of education to be able to help other people, to be able to kind of pave the way for them. And when he retired, he finished with a net worth of over $2.7 million. And so I like this story because despite where we can start, Despite kind of where you were born or how you were raised or the parents you had or whatever your situation, I think it boils down to us as adults making a decision about what are we going to pursue for us? You know, we all have different start points and, and different issues going on, but ultimately we as adults get to sign our own permission slip on this journey. Hey, Chris, I'm curious about your story. How did you become Chris Hogan? Well, I I'm mean, sure you I, got a unique story. I know I'm throwing you a little curveball here, no, but no, no, that's not a problem. I'm, I, I can tell you right now, I am where I am because of a few things. It's the result of some teachers seeing more in this little country boy than I saw in myself. Uh, it's the result of family members, uh, of mentors, of coaches, of of treating people the right way in relationships, and obviously having some opportunities come my way because of the way I treat people. And so I think, you know, it, it's one of those journeys where I'm so grateful to people that poured into me. I'm grateful for people that took the time to explain things to me when I was 21 years old, coming out of college, uh, going into grad school, and taught me some things about money that I'd never had access to before. Chris, I wanted to ask you a question. You were just talking about the people who have helped you through your life, and you're talking about how Thomas got into a career you know, where he had the ability to help other people. In the book, several times you mention giving before saving. What are your guidelines for people around that when they're just getting started on this path? Well, I, for me, I mean, I was raised in a home that did, did a lot of giving. And so, you know, I understand the value of it. I understand the importance. Uh, anytime you're able to, to, to have that spirit about you, I think it really boils down to us understanding our goal with money, anything we have, we're stewards, uh, which means we're managers of that. And I think, you know, we have an obligation as well as an opportunity to be able to help others. And so I think that's part of the heart of this. And even in our study, uh, we found that 70% of these millionaires set aside money each and every month to be able to give. That's awesome. Why are you not singing 
Like you have the, well, the I, mean, I just voice. want him just to like like <laughs> yeah. sing me a song, you know. Listen, listen to me. People all the time hear me talk and they think, "Oh, I know he can sing." <laughs> and, and, and the reality is, is it's really important for us to know our limitations. <laughs> I'm good with the money. I'm not good with the singing. <laughs> hey, uh, where can people find your book? Speaking of giving. Well, <laughs> well, uh, you can find out about the book and myself as well as the Chris Hogan show by going to chrishogan360.com. That's my website. On there, you'll find some free tools as well uh, that can help guide people in this journey. Chrishogan360.com, and we'll we'll put that in our show notes. Right? Absolutely. Oh, Chris, it's uh, been a real pleasure. I was really excited to talk to you. Um, uh, this has been a real treat. Well, thank you so much. And speaking of giving, I'm going to have Mackenzie, my publicist, send you guys three books that are signed that you can use to give out to your listeners if you want or keep them for yourself. I'm sure Big Al will take two of them. <laughs> I'm, keep, I'm keeping them. Right, well, you know, he is an accountant. That's why he's so wealthy. That's why we call him Big Al, because he's got a big wallet. Hey, hey, the accounts were number two on the list, so it's not an accident. There you go, right? I noticed financial planners are not on there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that, Big Al. Right, you bet. Uh, that was Chris Hogan, folks. Good thank st- you so much, Chris. Well, good stuff, Chris. This was a lot of fun. I look forward to talking to you guys again. All right, uh, yeah, me you, too. Chris. Note to self, watching cat videos will not make me rich. Okay, I'm on my way. We'll let you know when those books come in and whether Big Al decides to keep them. In the meantime, to read the transcript of this interview or to hear or read any of our previous interviews with guests like Liz Ann Saunders from Schwab, Gene Chatsky from Her Money and NBC's Today Show, David Kelly from J.P. Morgan, and many others, visit the brand new YourMoneyYourWealth.com. Scroll down that page and you'll find the Ask Joe and Al on air button where you can email us your money question or send it as a voice message right there on the website. We'll get to some of those emails now. This one is from Tim in San Diego. Okay, what do we got? All right, I watched your video on advanced strategies on IRAs. In it, you mentioned both IRAs and 401s. However, it is not clear to me as you presented, especially on stretch IRA rules, if those IRAs rules apply to 401s. When you talk about IRAs and 401s, are the rules interchangeably, interchangeable? Sorry. In particular, do 401s have RMD requirements and stretch IRA process for the 401k? All right. Tim, I apologize because I have a very bad habit of doing this. Is that I will say IRA when I'm describing a tax deferred account. And I don't preface enough to say, when I say IRA, it means IRA, 401k, 403b, TSP, 457, SEP, simple, and everything else in right. between. Except when they're different. And you do preface that. <laughs> Except for when they're different. But I would say 90% of the-, the Mo- Most of the time. Most of the, the time, yeah. they, they, they work interchangeably. Right. Right. And there's been multiple times where I've been teaching a class for six hours. And I will talk about the you know tax-deferred accounts, and I just keep on referencing them as IRAs. And then, you know, someone would come to me and they'll be like, Joe, you know, this was, you know, the class is okay, but, you know, I don't have, I an, don't IRA. have an IRA. I, I have a 401k. Right. <laughs> 
So actually, this class sucked. Yeah, you know. so I didn't pay attention. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, no, the IRA made this. So, Tim, I understand, but I don't like to say IRA, 401k, 403b, TSP, 457, 403b, blah, 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 blah. Every time. Every time. It's just a pain in the ass. So let me answer your question here on air. When it comes to stretch IRA rules, IRAs always stretch in the tax law. So what a stretch IRA is, Alan? It means that when you receive an IRA as a beneficiary, non-spousal, so like you're a kid or grandkid, then you have the ability to stretch the required minimum distributions over your lifetime instead of having to take it all at once. So if you're 30 years old, you have a life expectancy of another 60 years, right? Right. Hypothetically. Yeah. Uh, then you would have to take one sixtieth out of the account. Right. So what is confusing for a lot of you is that if you inherit an IRA, you have to take a required distribution from that account. Even though you're not 59 and a half. Or 70 and a half. Or 70 and a half is yes. actually what I meant. Thank you. So even if you're not at RMD age of 70 and a half, and if you inherit a, a retirement account, you have to take a required distribution. As long as it's set up as a stretch. And so what the stretch provision allows is you to stretch out that tax liability over your life expectancy. If it is not set up correctly, you'll either have to take a full distribution that year, or you have to take it out within five years, or you're going to have to follow the deceased's RMD schedule if they died past their required beginning date. So I know, see, Tim, it's this not is where, as, this is we're on tricky. a TV show, and it's like, I got five minutes to explain all this crap. Right. And, and each question, you really only have about 30 seconds. 30 seconds, right. So 401ks, they do not always stretch. Okay? It's under the plan document, because a 401k is established through an organization. IRAs, that's an individual retirement account that is established under a totally separate code. 401ks under Section 401k. So uh, an employer sets up a 401k plan. They create the own plan document of how they want that plan to work. So there's different iterations of a 401k plan depending on how that company wants to establish it. So there could be safe harbor 401k plans. There's top heavy. There's all sorts of different types of things that this 401k plan document has. So some 401k plans may not stretch. It might follow the old rules. Depends on the plan document. They might say, you know what, Tim? You inherited a 401k. Guess what? You have to take the distributions out within five years. So that's why we always suggest if you ever have a 401k plan to roll it into an IRA just to secure the stretch. So you inherit a 401k from your father, let's just say. And you're, oh, you're about to have a sneeze. But you, I got can, it. you can listen. <laughs> yeah. Anyway... Um, and so you're thinking, well, gosh, the plan doesn't allow me to stretch it, but I'm just going to roll that inherited 401k to a inherited IRA. What, what say you? So <clears throat> I die with a 401k. You're asking me if I can roll that into an inherited IRA. Yeah, so I can do the stretch that way. Sure. Yeah, you could do that. No problem. Um, you probably wouldn't want to to some degree. Okay, and why is that? Well, you would have to be the name beneficiary of the 401k plan. Sure. Okay? And then the titling has to change on the 401k plan to say, you know, um, 
let's you say you inherited mine, Joseph Anderson, right, right, deceased for the benefit of Big Al, right, right. So now you're the beneficial owner of that. Then yeah, you could. I mean, it's your account. Now, now it's my account, titled that way. Titled that way. And then I could roll it to an IRA titled the same way. Yes, you would just do a rollover titled the same and way. And then I could do the stretch out of the IRA, e- th- even though the 401k plan didn't have that provision. Correct. But here's the, here's the big caveat of this stuff, is that 401ks, inherited 401ks, you can convert to Roths. Inherited IRAs, you cannot convert to Roth. That's very true. I don't know who makes this stuff up. It's so right. So it's like okay. Well, now then you got to take a look at. Well, maybe I keep it in the inherited four hundred one k, and I do some Roth conversions with this stuff. Yeah, and I get it done in five years, so I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, right. So it all really depends on what your goals are. Um, so RMD requirements. RMD requirements are going to be the same in a four hundred one k in an IRA. The RMD requirement is on a Roth 401k versus a Roth IRA, so that's the only difference in an RMD requirement. Uh, so if you have a Roth 401k, just know when you turn 70 and a half, you will have to take an, a required minimum distribution from that Roth 401k. Um, if you have a Roth IRA, you will not have to take a required distribution. So again, you would just roll that Roth uh, 401k into a Roth IRA. Yeah, easy answer there. Steve from San Diego. Uh, he says in a recent episode of YMYW, I love it, Steve. Yeah, when you call it by YMYW, makes my heart just <laughs> pitter pat. Uh, Big Al talked about issues with holding real estate in IRA. If you are seventy and a half and you need to take a required minimum distribution, how is the amount determined if you're holding property in the IRA? Would you need to get an annual appraisal on the property? Uh, Steve, that's a great question. And the answer is no. You can get an appraisal, but that could be pretty costly year after year. Here's the re- the actual requirement to keep yourself safe is you have to have an independent third party come up with a value. So it could be an appraiser. It could be your accountant. It could be, it could be your financial planner if they're knowledgeable about real estate. It could be a real estate agent. But you just have to have a third party come up with a valuation. Uh, if you want to be 100% safe in the clear, you would actually get a, an appraisal and pay for an appraisal. But most people don't go that far. They just get an independent third party. I have another email that we need to answer. It's from Tina from Philadelphia. And uh, she goes, hi, Joe. Hello, Tina. <laughs> Just started listening to you and Al recently. I have some questions. Let me give you a little background. All right, Tina, what do you got? She got married in September 2017. Prior to getting married, I was on the path to debt freedom and looking to transition to a different career. also work with a financial planner since 2008 and learned recently by listening to you. Thank you. Dave Ramsey his and her money in other podcasts that some of the advice I've been getting wasn't necessarily the best. Anyway, fast forward to now. My husband and I both have IRAs that have um, uh, within plan uh, Roth conversions. I'm not sure what that means. That means you can do a conversion inside the plan. Uh, oh, okay. I'll translate for you. So it's a 401k plan. Yeah. I came... Into our marriage with a Roth outside of work, where I put 500 bucks a month, my work IRA, or 401k, is matching 8%, and a rollover IRA where no money is being added. My husband came in with his work IRA, or 401k, with a 6% match. 
My financial planner recommends my husband start in outside Roth. Our gross income is about 160000 with bonus. I make approximately two-thirds more than my husband. Good for you, Tina. We are 53 and 58. My husband wants to leave his job around 65 uh, years when he, or 6.5 years when he's 65. Got that background, Big Al? Got it. All right. Now to the question. Here's my question. I think instead of starting an outside Roth, my husband should increase his 401k contribution to 10%, and he and I should do conversions starting up to the year he turns 65, from now up to the year he turns 65. I will be 60 at the time, and we should be totally debt-free, house and all. I think I should then increase my IRA contribution to the max and continue the conversions until I leave or retire. I'm expecting to stay for an additional 10 years or longer. What do you think? Okay. Well, let's see. The first thing, the question is, should my husband uh, start an outside Roth and increase his 401k contribution to 10%? I agree with both of those because... Right now, you're getting close to retirement. Of course, we don't know how much you have saved, so I'm assuming you still need to save, but uh, that's that's a good idea. And I should do conversions starting now up to the year he turns 65. That year, I'll be 60. I think even with both of your salaries, Roth conversions are even better now than they used to be because the tax rates are lower and the, and the brackets stretch pretty far. So I do agree with Roth conversions as a general statement. I don't know enough about your situation to say that definitively, but as a general rule, I would, I would agree. Now, stopping at age 65, no, you actually, that's probably the best time to continue it because now you're even in a lower tax bracket. So you probably would even want to continue after that. The main question is, I think instead of starting an outside Roth, so instead of making contributions, she's thinking put more into the 401k and convert. Okay. What do you think? That there's, yeah, there's, there's the same, same. There, there's no difference anymore. It used to be that when you did that, you can do two conversions and, and invest them differently and pick the better of the two and recharacterize the other one. Now you can't do that, so it doesn't really, doesn't really matter which you pick. So, uh, Tina, I guess here's our point is that it depends on how much that you want to convert. You might want to do both, right? So if you are doing a Roth or increasing your 401k contributions and then doing a conversion, right, well, you pay the tax on the conversion. If you're only going to convert $6,500, well, then just make a $6,500 Roth contribution, yeah, you end up in the same spot. You end up in the same spot because it's an after-tax contribution that goes in the Roth versus converting a pre-tax account and paying the tax to go into the Roth. So <clears throat> I like her thinking of saying, hey, you know what, maybe we get some tax diversification here, uh, but we would need a lot more information in regards to, all right, well, what are the balances in the 401k plans? What's the tax bracket they're in? What fixed income sources are you going to have in retirement? What's your Social Security statement look like? What is your, are you going to receive pensions? Right? Um, is there any real estate income? Is what, yeah. And th- I, there's a lot more to this. There is. And I, and I think it, it just goes to show that it's, it's hard to give blanket advice when we know so little. Right? And, and that's to, get, to really get the best advice. And that's where 
you know, you could potentially do a lot of research yourself, or you could go to a financial planner that's able to 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 look at this kind of planning. But but once you know all the particulars, then it becomes a little bit clearer what you should do. But yeah, in the case of that one question, should you do a Roth contribution or should you do a, a, a deductible and then a conversion? It's now same same. There's no advantage or disadvantage either way. Right. So it's simpler not to do the conversion. So if if you can avoid it. Right, and, and get right. the same amount. Yeah, but if you're looking to convert, I don't know, thirty thousand dollars, well, then you make the contribution to the Roth of six, right, and then you convert, you know, twenty four. Yeah, true. And to get the thirty thousand dollars in the Roth, so you might want to do both. Right. So hopefully that answers <laughs> your question, Tina from Philadelphia. <laughs> she does have a financial planner. Yeah, she does. So I don't know. I think. <laughs> Uh, if she's I, saying he's not giving her the best advice, well, I, don't, I, I was I was thinking as I was reading this, mm-hmm. it was like, well, he's telling me to put seven hundred dollars into a variable universal life policy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or but it doesn't seem like it. No, yeah. Roth yeah. IRA. That seems pretty cool. So to recap, the fellas just answered your questions about inherited IRAs, stretch IRAs, self-directed IRAs, and Roth IRAs, which just goes to show that IRAs or individual retirement accounts are very complicated and their uses are very specific. In fact, there are at least eight different types of IRAs, and we have a free guide that will walk you through each of them. Learn who's eligible to contribute, the differences between deductible and non-deductible IRAs, and which type of IRA suits your needs. Download the free guide, Eight Types of IRAs. Find it in the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. We got Jason Thomas. He's here. Hey, how's it going? Why are you here? <laughs> I don't know. I've been asking that myself. That's a very existential <laughs> direction you guys uh, want to take. <laughs> Jason, why don't you introduce yourself to um, our audience here? I am uh, one of the financial educators at the firm up in the Los Angeles area, and I have the pleasure of being in San Diego for the week, uh, rain having followed me. And uh, But I always enjoy being down here. I teach some of the classes and write some of the stuff for the site. Oh. What's your background? Uh, Besides back- a stand-up comic. Ooh, that's that's part of it. I've had many tomatoes thrown at me, uh, but I've taken all of that stuff down, and uh, the bodies are buried, and uh, no no proof of that previous past is uh, is here anymore. We can't see your old stuff, huh? No, and that's Notes by design. Nowhere. Got it. All right. Uh, Want to give a tribute to Jack Bogle, founder of Vanguard, uh, passed away this week at uh, age eighty nine. Yes, he did. I think it was um, Wednesday. Yes, it was Wednesday. Uh, pioneer in the mutual fund industry, 1974, I believe, is uh, when he established the Vanguard Group out of Wellington. Right. And maybe 75 was the first S&P 500 um, index fund is what they came out with. Yeah, so he's the father of the index fund, the whole concept of having an index fund. I think the index fund was developed before him. But not to the retail investor. Yeah, that could be true. But that's uh, th- he's kind of known, right? No, of as course. The and, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Because I think he did a, a heck of a job getting out there and, and you know trying to help educate the the public on yeah. investing. And, and and his thought was long term investing is the way to go, and you just invest and and don't worry about buying and selling all these positions. Just have the index and and. 
have it be low cost. I mean, so that was his story, and, and it didn't really catch on at, at the beginning. Well, they thought it was un-American. Well, <laughs> right? I, yeah. I mean, because it's like, all right, it's, that's laziness. Right. Yeah. Is be- what they are like, you're just buying the entire market, and you're just going to just wrap it up. And yeah, don't do anything. No one's managing it. So right. why? How you why have is, to do research. You have to find. You have to pick the uh, right uh, stocks. You have to pick the right stocks. You have to sell the bad ones. You got to buy the good ones. You got to make sure that you're, you know, understanding what's going on. The markets right. move fast. And, and I mean, that's how the industry worked, and that's how it still works it, it for does. the most part. For, yeah, for a big chunk of it, and and it took a while for it to catch on, uh, but. It, it, it did catch on, and what's interesting now is all these actively managed, actively managed funds are compared against indexes, and more often than not, they don't beat the indexes. The indexes usually, not always, but usually come out on top. But uh, Vanguard does have actively managed funds. They do, but that's where it started was the index fund. Yes. And they did that just because certain customers demand that, and so they had to do that. Any uh, comments on Jack? That's a that's a loss. It's kind of like even though that wasn't his uh, development, it's kind of like we associate Henry Ford with the assembly line, even though he didn't necessarily invent it, but certainly made something out of it to the masses. And I think uh, you could say the same thing about Bogle that he's basically changed the way that people engage in an activity and made a pretty substantial contribution. Henry Ford didn't. That's what, I, assembly line? that's what I heard. It, see, that's proving my point. <laughs> he, he didn't have to. He's associated with having done it based on... Uh, see, so he, he probably perfected it there. Ex- yeah, exactly. There's probably some, some brothers in South Carolina that came up with the idea. Exactly. <laughs> we All don't right, have what their it, name on a car. What other, <laughs> yeah, what other tidbits do you have? Um, we got teaching high school students. Uh, we got financial literacy month coming up here, right? Um, but a lot of different states now are trying to get involved, helping our children out with um, getting a little bit smarter around the checkbook. Okay, I like that. You know, I did a class once to high school kids, and I, um, you know, I teach a lot of adult education here in Southern California. That's Jason's full-time job is to teach education courses. Sure. And I, I taught a, um, a class for high school kids. This is, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. And a girlfriend of mine was a teacher, and she's like, hey, that would be great. I think they were like in eighth grade. No, it was sixth grade. It was elementary school. Okay. And so I went in with the Wall Street Journal, right, in my okay. HB 12C, sure. and we talked about what is a stock, you know, what is a bond, okay. what's, you know, just real elementary yeah, stuff. I like that. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, let's say if you saved $100 a month, you know, for the next 30 years, you know, you would have a million dollars, whatever it was, right? right? If you get a 7% rate of return, I was just trying to teach them compound interest as sure. well. And I thought I killed it, <laughs> right? I'm like, oh my God, I'm like the mentor of the year. All of these kids are going yeah. to be, you know. Yeah, gazillionaires. Uh, yeah. And I guess one of the parents, like, complained. Really? Yes. I was giving, like, false expectations or something like that. Because the kids were like, "Hey, I'm going to be a millionaire." Right. You know, I talked to this guy. He was in our class, and he told you know, me how to do it. Yeah. All we got to do is save a hundred. You know, you know. Of course, their allowance is six bucks a, well, a week. Yeah. So they, not, now the not, kids are asking for hundred bucks a month so they could put it in a mutual fund. <laughs> that was the real problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but now, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Kentucky 
Yeah. Uh, they announced a new bill that would translate into books, materials, and training for teachers uh, that they could educate their students on money management uh, with the goal of teaching Kentucky teens how to balance a checkbook. How cool is that? I mean, there's people that are our clients yes. that do not know how to balance a checkbook. I'd say it's 50-50. So also making um, smart house buying decisions, spending less than what they make. Um, you know, some of the most successful people that I've ever met, they're like, you know what, Joe, here's the secret. Spend less than what you make. It's not that hard, right? really. It, well, it, it's very hard for most. <laughs> the, <laughs> the concept is simple. Yes, it's simple but not easy. Is if what you can save, if you start your career and save 20% of what you make all the way through, you're going to have more money than you can possibly imagine in retirement. A couple bills are going through in Florida, in South Carolina, that would make it mandatory uh, for high school students to take a half credit uh, financial literacy and personal finance class okay. uh, before they graduate. Like it. Um, did, did you take anything like that in? College or high school? No. Jade, did you? I had one economics class, and that was an elective. In high school? Exactly. Yeah. We had um, a little bit of personal finance. I'm trying to remember. I, I, I do remember like having like a checkbook, right. you know, like a fake checkbook and things like that. But um, it I, wasn't. I, the... I, I think it was like an after-school thought. Right. You know? Yeah, I had, I had uh, geometry and trigonometry. And a little bit of pre-calculus. That's the Ooh, no, look no at checkbook. The big brain on Big Al. Just <laughs> <laughs> a little calculus. <laughs> California got an F in their grade. There is no personal finance education requirement to graduate. Some financial literacy content has been included in other curriculum, but are not required. Um, so other F states are Alaska, Hawaii, South Dakota, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Connecticut. Connecticut, Rhode Island, in Massachusetts. Why are you laughing? Because I can't. Well, you're trying to pronounce states on the fly. Connecticut. <laughs> so we should explain. This This comes from, in 2017, Chaplin College Center for Financial Literacy yeah. rated all 50 states. So that's what we're talking about in terms of financial literacy for their kids in high school. All right. Well, hey, I want to thank Alan Klopine. Also, the wonderful, beautiful Andy Last. And uh, Big Bad Jason Thomas. Yes. All right, that's it for us. We'll be back next week. Show's called Your Money and Wealth. Special thanks as well to Chris Hogan. Learn more about his book, Everyday Millionaires, at chrishogan360.com. Next week, our always outspoken friend, Larry Swedrow from Buckingham Strategic Wealth, joins us on Your Money, Your Wealth. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. And if you've got money questions, click the Ask Joe and Al on air button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to send an email or a voice message directly. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. 